Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. So the amazing thing just happened here at the bookstore. I set up the um, for doing the podcast that we're, you're listening to today. And who walks in but my really, really good friend, the wonderful author, Deborah Dean. Uh, hello, Deborah. How hey. are you? <laughs> would you join surprise? me? You want to join me and I start? I would love to. Yeah. Great. Yeah. That's great. What brings you into the bookstore today? I am buying... Emma's Emma by Austin and I'm trying I have no idea how many times I've bought this book but I'm preparing a new course a new um, graduate course in character and I thought that's what I need to have on my list and I went on my bookshelves and it's not there Wow. Well, that's amazing. So is it, is it a course on Austin or writing? No, no, no. How, I, you're going to use Austin as a kind of prompt? Yeah, here? I'm teaching. I'm developing a new course on writing characters. And so she's, she's, Emma's going to be on my reading list. But I don't know about you. Do you have to rebuy the same book over and over again? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> Although I have found myself buying books that I already have where I forgot that I had it. It's not that I was looking for another book, but I had forgot that I had the book and I actually had it. My problem is that I see so many books every year. It's like I'm on a conveyor belt and I have to really choose which ones I'm going to take home with me. And as you know, because you're a friend and you've been to the house, I have this, this accumulation of books that's quite do you, do you have a system where you will, where you know where the book is going to be, or is that why you no, can't find it? It's all herky jerky. It's all, I do keep fiction separate from nonfiction. Do you art. alphabetize? No, I don't do any oh of that. Oh my God. So how do you, how do you find a book? I just look, I browse, <laughs> I browse my house. You browse your own, your, your house. Okay. Right. Now the good news about having uh, Deborah pop in is that Deborah and I have known each other for many, many years and I don't have to do much preparation. And I know a lot about Deborah and I know that. Uh, for those of you who don't know Deborah Dean's work, you have to run out as fast as you can and buy any one of her books, including The Madonnas of Leningrad, which, if I'm not mistaken, was a New York Times bestseller. It was a number one indie select book. Mm -hmm. uh, it was on the New York Times best of end of the year list, right? I No. 
It was no. It, I, I can't. Let I can't me, own up to that. Uh, you ch- <laughs> no one will check. Yeah. It should have been if it wasn't. Uh, then she wrote the mirror. It, it, it went. A, it did well. It did really yeah. well. And then she wrote the mirrored world, and also a, a marvelous book called The Confessions of a Fallen Woman. And she has a new book out now called Hidden Tapestry, about the life of this incredible uh, artist named Jan Yours and his two wives, which we'll talk about in a minute. But the thing about Deborah that I've always uh, loved is the variety um the variety of paths that she's taken in her life and i think because this is more of a kind of just a free-form conversation i thought deborah that we can go through and talk a little bit about some of those paths you've taken okay so i know that you you grew up and grew up in seattle Uh right yeah and from there you went? I, uh, well, I went to college at this little liberal arts school in Walla Walla, Washington, Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. And I double majored in English and drama uh, because this is going to sound incredibly naive, naive like only a, an undergraduate could be. I thought I'm going to be an actor, but, you know, just, or I'm, you know, just in case that doesn't work out, I'm going to have the English degree to fall back on. <laughs> to teach, right? <laughs> what I thought I was going to do with it. I, when I was going to college, we didn't really think about, or at least where I went to college, we didn't really think about how we were going to make our way in the world. Or maybe it's because, and I'm carbon dating myself here, maybe it's because I'm a woman and I think it was just sort of expected I would marry somebody who would take care of that. So I never really thought we'll about- We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't marry someone who <laughs> took care of it, but- I, I just thought, I just want to read. That's all I really wanted to do. And I didn't really think about how I was going to pay the rent. But so acting was a real passion that you oh, had. Oh, yeah. To. Oh, yeah. And so you did then follow that path Yeah, first. I went to New York and I went to uh, the Neighborhood Playhouse and studied with a guy named Sandy Meisner. With, if you're an actor, you know who he is. And if you're a book person, you know, because he's really? written books on acting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I worked as an actor in the theater. And talk it, about some. You were in New York, and, uh-huh. and talk about some of the plays that you were involved. Well, in. I you can't tell from the podcast, but I look like a lot of people, and so I did a lot of understudying because I resembled the star. Uh, so I understudied in a play called uh, "Sister Mary Ignatius Explains sure. It All for You." You remember that I one? Do, I yeah, do. Yeah, I did that. That was my first job out of school. And who was the un- who were you understudying? Polly Draper. Uh huh. Sure. Yeah, um, but you know, I did it for I don't know three years, and then I understudied in uh, "Crimes of the Heart." Another wonderful play. And a great play. And then I went out on the national tour for that, which your your nephew is going to have that experience, right? Um, so, yeah, I did that. And was Sissy Spacek in, in Crimes of the Heart when you were in it? She was in the movie. She, she was didn't, in, just yeah, in the movie. She didn't do the, the stage play. Because you resemble her a little bit, I, <laughs> You know, what's funny is my, I come, my parents both resemble people. My dad was always mistaken for Robert Redford, which he loved. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And my mom was mistaken for Mary Tyler Moore. People would come up and ask them for their autographs. I'm just trying to get my mind around that pairing. That yeah, would have been a very were, interesting. Yeah, they were a gorgeous couple. In when real they life, were, yeah. that would have been a very interesting relationship. It, it would have been. Well, you know, and maybe it was in, in their life, too. Um, but so there's maybe there's something inherited. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, so I did that. I did Crimes of the Heart. I did all of that. There was also a lot of time in between jobs. 
And so is that when you started writing? I started writing. Yeah. You know, just because you can't, you can't just get up in the morning and decide to act. You have to wait for somebody so to hire I'm you. So I'm really interested in the spark. When was it? Do you remember a moment, the spark of inspiration that came and said, you know, I can write and I'm going to try it. And when did that happen? Or had you always been a writer? Did you write ever since you were young? I didn't write stories. No, no, I was just a reader. I'd, I'd, I'd never even occurred to me to be a writer. So was it someone you met in New York? Was it? Um, I think I was just, I was casting around for some some way to be creative when I wasn't acting. And I didn't really think about it, it being a profession. You know, I just, I didn't, when I was growing up, and then even when I was in college, there, everybody I read was dead. You know, they had been dead for at least a hundred years. And even in college, we went through the, I was an English major. We went through the Norton anthologies, but it stopped with like Hemingway or Fitzgerald. Right. And so I really never thought about authors as living people. It never occurred to me like that was a, a career path. And I, di- and I didn't think of it that way when I started writing stories. I was just amusing myself. So you were, it was, you were, you were, you were spending free time in a creative way mm-hmm. because you were a creative person. Mm-hmm. But you still had, the, in your mind, you were an actress. I was an actress. You know, I was going to auditions. But uh, I was also... Probably around the same period, I was starting to rethink the acting. I loved acting. And, you know, if I had been uh, more successful, I would probably still be doing it. But it's a pretty brutal business. No, of course it is. And and the older you get, especially if you're a woman, the harder it gets. So let's see, you went from one brutal business <laughs> into another brutal business. I know, business. I know. Being a writer. How many novels did you write or how many short stories did you write before the idea for Madonna's came alive in you? Um, I, I was a short story writer and I didn't have any intention of ever writing a novel just because I'm such a slow writer and I love writing compactly. I love writing little, little perfect things. And that's not a good strategy for novel writing. And I was also, after I got out of the acting and um, we moved from New York and went to Seattle, I went back and did my MFA. Um, I came out and I was doing short stories. And that's not, from a career perspective, not so smart, but I have never done the smart thing in, in career. It just doesn't, it doesn't move me. So you were writing short stories. I was writing short stories. And then someone noticed your short stories. Well, um, Marley Russoff. Your agent. Yeah. I, I, she took me on with just short stories and without the promise of a novel, I told her, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to write a novel. Right. And she was crazy enough that that didn't stop her. So she took me on and we started, um, uh, trying to figure out what would go in a collection of short stories, what to put in, what not to put in. And I had been playing around with this thing that was, going to become the Madonnas of Leningrad, but I had thought originally that it was a short story. And I pretty quickly realized it wouldn't, it wouldn't stay confined in that little space. And so I had put it back in a drawer, but it kept, it it kept coming back and haunting me. And so I would add more pages. And I, I said to her, listen, I've got about 50 pages of this thing and it should probably be a novel, but, um, 
maybe I can bludgeon it back into a short story if you think it would work in the collection. And so I sent it off to her and she got back to me and she said, Deborah, I know you don't want to write a novel, but you have to write this. And I'm going to hold the short story collection until you're done. And then I'll market them together. So the really the only reason that Madonna's of Leningrad ever got written is that she was holding my short stories hostage. <laughs> As a good agent. Will yeah, do. yeah, yeah. So she sold it together, the she short did. stories she did. with the novel. And and basically if they wanted Madonna's of Leningrad, they had, they had to, to take, take the, the short, short stories and publish those. And boy, I think it was Morrow and Harper Collins mm-hmm. that took Madonna's of Leningrad, and I'm sure they were really happy that they did. Because it went on, I know as a bookseller, even before I met Deborah, it went on to great, great success. Um, and you're to this day still. It doing, amazes me. I this mean, book I know, just keeps know, chugging I'll, along. I'll call up Deborah and she'll say, well, I, I've got a book group that I need to call in about, a, in about an hour because they're reading Madonna's of Leningrad. Tell me a little bit, you know, about the genesis of the stories of, you know, where you got Madonna from, where did it come from? Why don't you lay out what it is? Yeah, well, it's, it started as two separate short stories. My grandmother, uh, whom I was very close to, she had Alzheimer's. And I think this happens with a lot of people who have a loved one that has Alzheimer's. You start wondering what the experience is like on the other side. And of course they can't tell you. Uh, and so the way I process things very often is through fiction. And I started writing a short story that was from her point of view. Um, my grandmother is not Russian, but I was also working on another short story that was based on, uh, well, I, on the Hermitage Museum, on the Siege of Leningrad. I had watched a, P, a special on PBS on the Hermitage, and they talked about the siege when they had emptied out the museum for safe, taken the paintings into safekeeping so that if Hitler broke through the lines, he wouldn't get the art. And there was a curator at the museum that started giving tours of the empty museum. And they had left the empty frames hanging on the walls just as a, well, the romantic explanation is that as a pledge that the art would come back. The less romantic explanation is when they did come back, they'd know where they hung. So there were all these empty frames in the museum and he would take people around and he would stand them in front of an empty frame and he would just describe the painting that had hung inside that frame. And witnesses said he could describe these paintings in such detail and with such passion that they could almost see them. Mm -hmm. And when I heard that, I got this little chill up my spine and I said, this would make a great short story. And then in parentheses, this was in my journal, in parentheses afterwards I wrote, or a novel, but for the research. So I decided to try and write it as a short story. It does not work as a short story. That and my grandmother's story fused together. And they, and I I just started making pieces and I, and I built that novel like a, like a quilt, not really kind of knowing how it was all going to fit together. And it's so beautiful and so well done. Thank you. And, and, um, and then you went on to write, more fiction. And then you had a very interesting transition, which we'll talk about when we come back. We're going to have to take a break. Okay. You're listening to The Literary Life. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. I'm here with Deborah Dean, who happened to stop into Books and Books uh, this afternoon and uh, serendipitously, we're able to have this conversation. What kind of kismet um, is that? Yeah, it's really wonderful. 
Um, we were talking about the transition you made from fiction into your new book, which is called Hidden Tapestry. It's the life of this very, very unusual artist, Jan Yours, and the life that he led with two, basically two wives. And it's, uh, the life itself was a tapestry, hence hidden tapestry. And uh, this is in, in the realm of talking to you about transition and paths that you take. Um, why did you feel like you could do a nonfiction book? Um, well, you know, I should, we should start with how I came, how I got this story, right? Yeah, no, I mean, we're good friends and <laughs> I had a little something to do with the story in the sense yes. that I, I, if, if truth be told, I mean, this story was a story that I knew um, and I happened to know that Jan Yours's wives were looking to tell their story and knowing Deborah being such a remarkable uh both researcher as well as having a really good feel for historic fiction, I thought she could make that transition a little bit. But the question I have is, what made you believe in that? So I want to say, first of all, like, I remember the day that I, I mean, I came into the bookstore and you said, I have your next book, oh, okay. which is making me think like, I need to come into this bookstore more often. I well, come in, I get a one day. Not, maybe not just before a book you leave, read. we'll come up with the next one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Did did we ever think about it being fiction? Was no. it ever discussed? I don't think no. so. Yeah, um, I don't think it's that big a leap to be honest, because my fiction is historical fiction and it's really heavily researched. So i I have had I have always had the scaffolding of the history and the truth and. Hidden Tapestry, to me, doesn't seem that different from Madonnas of Leningrad. It's the same thematic obsession. So who was Jan yours? Oh, he was, oh my God, he's, this is the hard part with this book, is to try and explain this guy in like an elevator speech. He was a Flemish-American artist um, who ran, when he was a child, when he was like 12 years old, he ran away with the gypsies. This is in, in Europe in the 30s. And he traveled around Europe with them. And occasionally he would go back to his, his uh, biological parents. His, they were bohemians. They were artists. For some inexplicable reason, they were kind of okay with this arrangement of him going back and forth between his adopted Roma family and them. And he did this until World War II broke out. And then early on in the war, an MI6 agent approached him and wanted him to persuade the Romas to fight in the resistance because they had all of the skills you need for that. And so he did. And he was a resistance person during the war. He was created one of those lines that got uh, people out of occupied Europe into safety in Spain. He made like 20, 21 of those trips. He was a saboteur. He was in and out of Nazi prisons. The last time he was there for six months, they tortured him. They really messed him up. And after the war, uh, he went back and he found this young woman who had met him when she was seven years old, and they had been corresponding. 
in all of this time. And she knew nothing about his real life. He was making up these incredible, fabulous lies about what he was really doing. He promised her when she was seven years old that he would come back and marry her. Eleven years later, he did. Which would be a, a wonderful romance. If, if I were writing a romance novel, that's where it would end. The truth, though, is like he had PTSD. He was very troubled. He went, they went to England. He took up his dad's career as an artist, but he needed a model. And so they brought in her best friend from childhood. She started modeling. You know where the story is going there. Uh, he became involved with her. But neither one of them wanted to betray his wife, Annabert. And so he came up with this idea. Um, and you can tell me whether this is a common male fantasy. He said, well, you know, they can just share me. And everybody I've talked to that knew Jan said he was so charismatic and so charming. And I, and I got to think he must have used every ounce of that charm to persuade them to do that. But they did. And they became very friendly and tight. They were, the they were friends from childhood. Right. But I should rush to add, because Marion would want me to make this clear, they didn't have a sexual relationship. Right. This no. was, yeah, this was like just old-fashioned polygamy. Right. And they moved to New York and moved to Greenwich Village, because, you know, that's where you go if you're, if you're an artist and, and, a, and a bohemian threesome. and a threesome. <laughs> right, because nobody's going to look too hard. Right. And so then the rest of the book, the second half of the book, is just about that period, about New York in the 50s, well, 60s, and, and, 70s. And, and, and the three of them and how they pursued his art. Yes. And it's, and it's about being an artist, you know, and kind of what it's really like as opposed to what people think it's like. And, and he, his work is remarkable. And it his is. His photography is remarkable. There are many different books published that... Um, many of them are out of print, but they're about his photography. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he did tapestries. He so did talk tapestry. A little bit about yeah, that they did. And this was this is one of the practical reasons to have more than one wife. He designed <laughs> this enormous this. Ta these enormous tapestries, and then the women wove them. And they're incredible. They kind of they're really bright colors, maybe two or three fields of color and, and black, and they kind of look like the Matisse cutouts. I think. And they're stunning. They have that very 50s modernist feel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know. And if you see them, unfortunately, with tapestry, it, it's not easy to see them in, in person uh, anymore. But you can go online and look at, if you just Google Jan Yours, it's J-A-N-Y-O-O-R-S. You know, one of my favorite writers, Adam Huxchild, wrote yes. a marvelous, marvelous little review and a little blurb of, of this book. I was so and, honored and what that he, he did says, that. This is what Adam says. It's rare when an extraordinary artist wins a biographer of equal quality. As someone who admired Jan Yours greatly and once spent a few days in his unusual household, I'm delighted to see this story told with grace, with careful research, and with such compassion for the women who are an invisible part of his work. That's kind of remarkable coming I was, from Adam Rothschild. I was so thrilled. Yeah, he and, and Ross King both had really 
nice things to say about the book, and that just made me feel accepted into the into the circle because yeah, I, I wrote, admire them so much. Yeah, uh, uh, Brunelleschi's Dome. I mean, uh, he's a marvelous writer in his own right. He too loved the book, as has every single person I've given it to. So, uh, those of you who are not familiar with Hidden Tapestry is something that you know that I highly recommend, and it's a book that I think. Um, does one of those things that a bookseller loves to be able to tell his or her customer that you are going to learn about a life that you didn't know about, but a life that was so rich. And at the time that that life was lived had such a big impact because Jan was sort of a little bit of a toast of the town in New mm-hmm. York at the time. Mm-hmm. He was well known by everybody yeah. who lived in New York yeah. in the fifties. Yeah. So and Andy 60s. Warhol makes an appearance in yeah. the book and uh, yeah. Um, it's he was everywhere, so it's really not just a story about them. It's about World War Two, and it's about Greenwich Village, and it's an it's a he had a great life. And I I have to say this. I think I can say this. Well, it's going to sound immodest. I think it's a great book, but it's not my story, you know. So I don't feel. I think I can brag about it and not um, be too immodest because it's just such an amazing story. I had so much fun writing it. But it was hard, right? It was, it was hard. Difficult. It was it was hard because it's it's it was like putting together a puzzle and figuring out how all the pieces were going to go. And the one of the weird things is there was almost too much source material, which isn't usually the case when you're doing biography. But the first wife Annabert, she saved everything and she kept journals from the time she was a little kid. So there's like I don't remember 50 journals. And there's over 6,000 pages of get, letters. You have to get those translated as well. Some well, a lot of it was in Dutch. Right. And I don't read Dutch. Right. And it was way too much money to afford to hire somebody to translate all of this. I mean, there was just so much. Right, right. So <laughs> I don't, this is probably very unorthodox, but Marion did a lot of the translating. And we would Skype. Marion at the time was, when we started working together, was like 87 years old. Marion was one of the wives. Marion was the second wife. And she's the one that's still alive. Uh, I never met the two of the three people. But she was instrumental in in helping with this So let me ask you this question. You know, I often hear biographers say when they choose their subject, because often biography takes so much more time than fiction to write, that they have to really like the person they're living with for that period of time. But I'm going to ask you a little bit of a different question. What is it like living in your mind and constructing a book about a, a real a person who really lived versus what is it like living with a fictional character uh-huh. that you're having to gestate and, and then eventually write about? For me, I know other other fiction writers talk about their characters as though they might just bump into them walking down the street. I've never felt that way. I've always been aware of them as being kind of Frankenstein monsters. You know, I know where the ear came from. I know where this bit of history came from. But real people, it's different. You know, the story is already handed to you. And so my experience with this was so much more obsessive. I dreamt about the yours, which was disconcerting because, you know, I was spending all day. I mean, it's not surprising. I was spending all day reading the letters and, and reading, you know, doing the background research, but then I would dream about them. And then Marion 
I'm, I'm talking on the phone with her. I would go up to New York, but I couldn't afford to make a trip every time she had something to tell me. So I taught her how to Skype and we would have these, we would talk. In how the old is Marion now? She is 92 and Amazing. she is, she is going strong. I talked, I, I talked to her last night. So it's like, it's not like our relationship ended when the book came out. She's so funny because she wants to be, this is her story. And she's like really kind of thrilled to have it out there, but she's also a little mortified because there's stuff in this book that nobody knew about until I published the book. So how does this then change the way you approach your teaching? Because you've taught fiction mostly, Uh right? And you really haven't taught nonfiction. So does does it ever seem like that's something that you could possibly do? Well, we have an incredibly talented person teaching nonfiction at FIU, and we try not to poach each other's territory. Uh, so I don't know whether I will teach nonfiction or not. Although she doesn't do biography, she does memoir and. and um, well, talk about the, the talk about the art of teaching, and what that has brought to your work. Um, you are, you know, I know that from most of your students who just love taking classes with you. You know, some people teach as a means of supporting themselves while they do their work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and others are that much more passionate about teaching. And you've always fallen into the latter category, I've always felt. And you seem to be someone who's very, very supportive of the entire process of well, teaching I, I just, I mean, I, I think it would be, it would be disingenuous and, and uh, immoral to teach if I didn't if I didn't take it seriously and if I didn't try and do it really well. I, I don't know that I'm a, a, a natural-born teacher. I've had to work at it to get better at it. I've had a long time doing it. Uh, and, I, and I think I could live without teaching, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, I mean, I do, I do it in part because I don't, it relieves me of the pressure of having to write a bestseller, to, you know. Um, but... I, I don't know. I, you know, I get things out of it. When I, when Madonna's of Leningrad was, was purchased and they paid what for me at the time seemed like an astronomical sum. I mean, you know, th- this is book money, not movie money. But for me, I was so poor. I was, wor- I was working at the time as a part-time community college teacher, which is uh, academia's version of migrant labor. You know, the pay is, is horrible. And you have to teach so much that you don't have time to write. It's really, it's a, it's a catch-22. And so when Madonna's of Leningrad was sold, I quit my job. I mean, I didn't even hesitate. I, I stayed the rest of the term because, you know, I had a contract. And I was teaching with this fellow who, I, we shared an office. And he said, what are you going to do if you don't teach? You know, like, I can't imagine you not teaching. And I laughed. I thought, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> this is not going to be a problem so, at all. So if, if you're if uh, imagine yourself being a listener and being uh, a budding writer, tell tell that budding writer what they would get out of your program. What um, does what does an MFA bring to a writer 
someone like you when you were acting, mm-hmm. what would have been what would what would you have gotten out of an MFA program? Well, I'm going to talk about our MFA program because uh, I teach at Florida International University. And MFA programs from one to another are really, really different. And I've taught at three of them. So, and and all three have been very different. We are uh, very cognizant of the, the market. And so we, our goal is when somebody gets out of our MFA program, they have a book that they can publish. And, that, and you've had good success. Oh yes, oh yes. I, mean, I think of Don Davies. And Don Don Davies' book is is doing fabulously. Yeah, yeah, and she's one of our recent graduates. One of the early ones was Dennis Lehane, uh-huh. who came out of the program. So the program has has yeah, done. Yeah. So you, and you can't you can't actually we won't graduate you until you have a that book. That kind of a book. That well, is, that's a very tangible result. And you hang out with an, another writer almost all the time, and that's your husband. Who also right. is a writer, who's a, a marvelous poet, yeah, yeah. Uh, Cliff. And why don't you talk about what it's like living with another writer and how you negotiate that and navigate? Well, that. you know, he's a poet, so we we're on different sides of the fence. Um, however, the the big thing is not him as a poet, but it's him as an editor. He edits everything I write. He's my first reader, and if my books are any good, it's really largely due to him. Uh, I'm not good at pacing. And so he gets in there and he, he, a lot of what he's doing is slashing and burning, but he does it in such a nice, gentle way that I can tolerate it. I wouldn't recommend this. I don't think most couples, most writers, I don't think most writers let their spouses in there to do that. Um, but he's really good at it and he gets what I'm trying to do. So he's very invested in, in my writing, and his fingerprints are all all over the pages. In fact, I can say this: no one else has ever edited my books. I have editors, but they've never edited, you know, beyond like proofreading and that kind of thing. He's 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 the editor for all of them. Yeah, and and Cliff is a remarkable guy. Who, yeah, one of the greatest experiences ever with Cliff is um, watching a Notre Dame football game with him since <laughs> oh, he God. went to Notre Dame as well. <laughs> you're a brave man. <laughs> <laughs> but, but let me ask you now that, you know, since you're in the bookshop and you, you know, Emma is something that you came for, what have you been reading? What do you like? Who's, who's, who's interesting to you well, these days? I, I just started reading Lincoln and the Bardo yesterday and I am entranced. By George I, Saunders. Oh, well, I love George Saunders. And I've been kind of waiting. I've been eyeing that book since it came out and waiting to have a moment to, to read it. Because a lot of what I end up reading is, is things that I'm reading for teaching or I'm reading my students' manuscripts or, you know, it's, I, I just finished reading a book that I, they wanted a blurb. So this is just reading for fun. And you knew him from his short stories, of course. Yes, too. yes. Right. Um, and I just started reading it and I thought it was so interesting because I, it, it's hard to get into, you know, the first, I don't know, 20 pages or so are very disorienting and you're trying to figure out what it's, it's, it's almost like our town that it's this chorus of, of voices, but it's all little one or two sentence, uh, snippets pulled from 
Lincoln historian. You know, I was I was once at uh, a, a book fair. I think it was in Guadalajara, and I think John Hawkes was there speaking, or someone like John Hawkes. And 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 basically, what he was saying was, like any art, you know, it's not necessarily the the responsibility of the artist to make it easy mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for you to experience it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really telling thing. The reader has a responsibility to sort of approach a book like Lincoln and the Bardo and kind of figure it out as they go. And I think that's what I had to do as well. Yeah, no, you do. And well, and the book teaches you how to read it. Right. You know, eventually, you know, you it doesn't take too long before before you're engaged and you know how to read it. And then it's just, I mean, so far, I mean, it's like I'm in the fast current of, the, of this river. It's wonderful. But I also was thinking, I thought, you know, I wonder how easy this would have been to sell if it weren't George Saunders. Because even though you say that, that it's, there's a responsibility of the reader to work at it, um, everything now, you know, everything is, goes through a marketing team. And yeah, but you know something? Uh, books that are kind of out of the box, uh -huh. you know, sometimes do very, very yeah, well, even yeah, with yeah. a writer that's not very well known. Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, uh, when Name of the Rose was published in this country, it was seen as a very difficult one. Right. Or Elena Ferrante. These are not easy reads, Calvino. as we know it. Calvino is another one. So, you know, I mean, I think you can market it, but ultimately it comes down to the book as well. Yeah. You can't over-promote something that somebody's not going to really uh, spark to in some way. And so many people have sparked so oh, yes. well to this book oh, yes. uh, that, um, you know, it's really well, he's exciting. Just, he's got such a, a generous soul, such a generous spirit. So I'm always willing to... Well, I want to recommend a book to you if you haven't read it. Lauren Groff's Florida is an excellent book. Oh, yeah. It's a collection yeah. of short stories, and you might really love it. Yeah. So why don't why don't we go get a bite to eat, and then I'll show you the book afterwards. Okay. What do you think? Sounds good. Sounds good. Deborah, it's been a pleasure, you know, talking Thank you. to you. Thank you. I'm so, like I say, I'm so glad I just yes. wandered in here. It's um, great. I'll come more often. And, and we'll see each other soon. Give Cliff a big hug. Okay. All right. All right. Bye. I hope you like what you heard and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts and also give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Thanks for joining The Literary Life.